0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And in a minute, I've got a conversation for you. It's a little different than the normal conversations I have on here. And I think you're going to like it. But first, I wanted to mention that if you wanted to hear what I have to say about Warner Media and Discovery and HBO Max and what's actually happening there and what we should expect in the future... You're gonna to have to wait a little bit but i predict and it's a pretty good prediction that we're going to get into this one more than once in the near future and second if you're interested in hearing what i have to say about axios selling itself for a half billion dollars you're in luck because i wrote about it on vox.com this week and you can read it there for free you could also have it sent to your inbox also for free but the takeaway there is that axios like several other digital publications focused on washington and policy have really benefited from many ad money that Facebook and Google and Amazon and other tech companies have been pouring into that market over the last few years. It's called corporate responsibility advertising. It's it's really just branding, right, for for big companies that want to reach people in politics. Um, That market has always been there. Now it's gotten very big. It's maybe $350 million, divvied up by several different publications with new ones who want to get in. And that's also a reason why Semaphore, that's the new publication coming from Ben Smith and Justin Smith this fall, is going to have a heavy Washington-slash-policy component. And I'm pretty sure we're going to end up talking about that one as well in the nearest future. Okay, on to today's interview, which is with Nell Thomas, who is not a media mogul, but is the CTO of the Democratic National Committee. She's not the kind of guest we normally have on here, but I wanted to talk to her because She's really interesting. She's got an interesting career. She's gone back and forth between big tech companies like Facebook and political roles working for Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And I also wanted to talk to her because politics is really another form of marketing, which is something we talk about here. And I was interested in getting a fresh perspective on it. So that's the preamble. And now here's me talking to Nell Thomas. I'm here with Nell Thomas. She's Chief Technology Officer for the Democratic National Committee. She's had that job since 2019. Welcome, Nell.
0: I'm excited to be here.
1: Thank you. We do not have a lot of chief technologists on this podcast, certainly not for political organizations. I just want to give people your background before I ask you what it is you do for a living. But you've gone back and forth between big tech companies, medium-sized tech companies, and politics. You were most recently at Facebook before you were at the DNC. Before that, you did analytics for the Clinton campaign in 2016. You were at Etsy for four years. Now I've gone through your CV. So we're good there. What does a chief technology officer for the Democratic National Committee do?
0: Before I dig into nuts and bolts, I'll just do a little framing because technology is a broad term. The Democratic Party is a very, very broad organization. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, we serve, my team that I lead serves campaigns. And We serve the campaigns and the organizations that support campaigns, so state parties and other federal committees like the DCCC and the DSCC. And campaigns, by their very nature, are time-bound and resource-constrained. And so where the DNC as an enduring institution can help add value is providing foundational infrastructure. So a campaign spins up maybe for three months, four months, nine months, at its longest 18 months. They don't have time to kind of start from scratch with a really robust technology platform or data platform. So the DNC steps in to really help provide We've that. been
1: building this for you. We'll, we'll, <laughs> exactly. we'll basically lease it out to you.
0: 100%. You know, there's a lot of things that we could do in that sp- spectrum even. It's still a broad mandate to say what are the things, websites, advertising, um, donations. We really focus on the data that campaigns need to talk to voters. So we maintain a 300 million person database of – registered voters in America and potentially registered voters that gives campaigns the ability to contact with the right message at the right time voters across the
1: country. So I, I talked to you briefly before we we, mm-hmm. we did this interview. I wrote down data warehouse. Is that, yes. is that a fair dumbed down version of what you're running?
0: A very cool data warehouse. Um, and the data inside that warehouse really is what kind of the the gold mine that we are custodians of, I would say. I think one thing people don't really think about when they think about campaigns is how much work goes into just talking to every voter, wherever you live, and making sure that they can receive mail or text messages or we can target them on TV Mm -hmm. or online. And so for a campaign who starts from scratch to be able to know where to start is really, really difficult. So we really try to make sure they have a clean, usable kind of easy-to-go set of data and data tools to access and use that. And so that's, that's kind of like the the number one thing my team focuses on. Here's Peter on.
1: Kafka in Brooklyn. Here's what we know about him.
0: Here's his history as a voter. You know, what kind of – what uh, what party is he registered with or what uh, primaries has he voted in? Um, how have we talked to Peter in the past? Has other campaigns reached out to this person? Has he engaged as a volunteer? Um, what do we know about his likelihood to, say, have a college degree, own a gun, care about abortion rights – um, and all that information can really help a campaign make sure they're speaking authentically
1: to a voter. Do you have a sense of how the, the, the data collection and storage you're doing differs from, say, a national advertiser that wants mm. to talk to mm-hmm. lots of people across the country um, or someone who's trying to reach people for a smaller direct response campaign? I'm trying to frame this for people who are who do that stuff for a living and yeah. maybe do not do politics who so listen to this podcast.
0: I think it's more similar than different, actually. Like, I, I do think a lot of what we're doing is fundamentally providing the the raw data that can be used for, in essence, marketing a politician. I would say one of the biggest differences, and I think one of the reasons the work is so exciting and fun for me, is that the measurability problem is much, much harder for us than it is for a lot of um, more traditional marketers who might have more ways of knowing whether or not their advertising is working.
1: We showed this ad to Peter. We know that he saw saw it on Facebook and he clicked. That's the most basic one. That's why Facebook does so well, why Google does so well. They have versions of that. There's the broader ones. We showed him an ad and we don't know that he bought something six months later, but we're guessing that he did. I assume you're more in that category.
0: Exactly. So a little bit more like marketing and car or a mattress than Mm -hmm. marketing a shoe or, you know, something that is very easy to buy in one click.
1: But you're also doing multiple things when you're messaging, right? Because sometimes you want me to vote. Sometimes you want me to give you money. Sometimes you want me to do something else.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the most common confusions when people think about what political campaigns do is the work that is done to get people to donate money versus the work that's done to get a voter to vote you know, many people feel like it's a little bit of a bimodal distribution. Either you're getting 1 million text messages and emails asking you to engage, specifically donate to a campaign, or you're not getting very much contact at all. And and really where my team focuses and our data warehouse, the data inside it, is on that latter category of voter information. So Donation based work is much more fragmented and is much more at the campaign level. Kind of the voter information is where we really centralize and focus on storing data over time to create a rich repository that is now decades long in terms of uh, voter behavior and voter activity.
1: So you came in in 2019. You saw firsthand uh, the issues the tech and the Democratic Party had in 2016. What needed to get fixed? What was already fixed when you got to the DNC three years ago?
0: Yeah. So in 2016, I was at the Hillary campaign, and I saw how hard it is to do a lot of the work of data cleaning um, when you're inside a presidential cycle.
1: Explain what data cleaning is.
0: So I've mentioned the 300 million person database that we know who Peter is and where he lives. Keeping that updated is very, very hard work. Um, So you're ingesting data sources from uh, hundreds of places to make sure we know the most current address, phone number, um, ethnicity, likely party, um, status of your household, to ensure that we can kind of, again, target you with the right information. It's even harder when you're a person of color. It's even harder when you're a younger person, more likely to be transient, move around.
1: Because there's less trail.
0: Less trail, more likely to move homes more rapidly. We have a really hard time finding tribal voters or rural voters where often even the address itself we get is not deliverable. So we have to do more work to make sure that we can even contact that person. So ingesting all that data, keeping it updated. Linking it across states, you know, there is no one database we can take wholesale and say, okay, this is a good version Mm -hmm. of all voters in America. It's work that requires basically weekly, if not daily investment to make sure it's really, really good. So for a campaign to come and try to do that work from scratch, it's really difficult. And I saw at the Hillary campaign, incredible work being done to try to make sure we had the best possible data, but you're working against a very hard deadline mm-hmm. of, of time. If you don't have a good infrastructure to rely on, you have to spend money. I saw spend you know over a million dollars on data warehousing that could have been spent on contacting voters directly, You know, buying uh, advertising or sending mail or funding events. So your pitch
1: is, we're going to take care of that for you. We're going to exactly. have the cleanest data. You don't spend time on this. You take the data we give you and put it to work doing whatever you want to do, raise money, get out the vote.
0: Exactly. And so I saw the work that went into that in 2016. And a a presidential is like the most well-funded, has the most resources to do that work and saw how hard it is for smaller campaigns to be able to effectively do that. And so when I evaluated where I could have the most impact with my own time and skills in 2019, I was really excited for this role at the DNC because it did feel like this is the right institution to provide that foundational infrastructure. And you asked, what state was it in? Um, The work to to kind of rebuild the foundational layer had already started when I joined. Um, And it was really kind of in post-2016 that there was a real reinvestment in technology and data for the Democrats. So I took over from uh, another fantastic CTO um, who also came out of Silicon Valley and have kind of continued to rebuild both the team behind this data, as well as the tooling and data itself. Um, And I, I would say the biggest and hardest thing about my work is actually attracting, retaining, and growing a talented set of technologists.
1: What's an example of something that you guys are going to be able to do in this coming election or in 2024 that you couldn't have done in 2020 or 2016?
0: I mean, I'd love to give, you know, a really- uh, Or just exc- better.
1: It's, the data is, is now 84% cleaner.
0: It's or- efficiency and efficacy. Um, and so where we really gain the advantage is on the margins. And, you know, I think a lot of time there's smoke and mirrors when you talk about tech and, and politics and people talk about, oh, we have an app that's going to solve all the problems yep. or we're using, you know, AI to do something really fancy. And I think there's, you know, there's always cool things we're doing and I can talk about them, but- at the heart, what we're doing is saving people money, and by people, I mean campaigns. So they can stretch their limited dollars a little further to be more efficient about who they're talking to and how they're targeting people. So very concrete example: of this is, you know, you have someone who's running for office, and they may, maybe they have a hundred volunteers who are helping make phone calls. How do you prioritize who those people are calling, and how do you make sure you're, you're using their hours most effectively? Having really good data about the folks they need to call is the best place to kind of stretch their impact and make sure that kind of the ROI for time spent or for money spent is as high as possible. So you're
1: walking this line between saying, here's a bunch of data, do what you want versus here's a bunch of data and here's how we suggest you use it. So it's a little prescriptive.
0: You know, yeah. I mean our primary bias is towards being that foundation um, and giving campaigns the room to operate mm-hmm. and make sure they're doing the right thing for their local race and for their specific campaign. But of course we also want to make this data as easy to use as possible. We don't want to just provide a bunch of opaque like scores that no one can understand or, or manipulate. So, we do a lot of education, a lot of training along along with the data.
1: And tw- after 2020, it turns out there was a lot of polling that was incorrect, mm. both on um, national races, local races. It seemed like it was both media polling plus internal polling and there was a lot of like come to Jesus, what's going to happen with polls. Um, I know it's not exactly what you do, but I assume it's pretty related to what you do. How much How much of, of what we saw in 2020 was specific to the fact that there were Trump voters who are hard to reach and they're just sort of hard to get people to get a handle on versus a breakdown across polling in general? And, and how do you think, how does that connect to what you do?
0: I love this question. good. It's a really good one. I don't think it was specific to Trump voters. I think because that was a
1: theory like oh his voters are either intentionally giving pollsters bad information or they're just they're just not usually people who turn up and maybe they're hard to reach and they don't pick up the phone and they distrust pollsters.
0: And it's a valid theory. Mm-hmm. I I would point to more evidence that just suggests that the reason that polling is breaking down it's because people are stopping answering their phones, um, and so when you look at the rate of people answering their phones and taking phone surveys, which is historically how polls are done, people call landlines. Mm-hmm. Again, if you go back a decade or more, and they ask people questions. Some of those surveys might be five minutes. Some of them might be sixty minutes. The number of people who literally answer their phones has dropped dramatically.
1: I took a poll. I don't know who commissioned it, but it was a political poll, mm-hmm. summer of 2020. I remember it was standing in a store mm-hmm. at Mall of America. Mm. And I was shocked at how long it went on for. And I I kept doing it just because I wanted to see how yeah. long it would go. But it was repetitive, kept asking me basically the same question over and over. I'm like, I'm going to do this just for giggles. But I can't imagine anyone else other than like a shut-in continuing to answer this poll.
0: And that's where you get huge selection bias. And that selection bias is what leads to pollsters having to go through very complicated and increasingly um, – nonsensical waiting, what they call quote unquote waiting, which is where they have to upweight someone's response to get it to be representative of of, of voters. And you see this specifically again with uh, the people who most likely to answer their phone are older Mm -hmm. Americans, um, likely in a landline. So there's obviously been shifts and pollsters are, are doing their very best to counter this trend by calling cell phones, looking at online, doing in-person, even mail-based surveys to try to vary the methods of data collection to try to counterbalance the sort of very heavy selection bias that they see in who's answering most polls. But it's a challenge. And I think that we've done some really interesting work over the last year to use the quote-unquote off year of 2021 to investigate different methodology um, opportunities. But there's no easy fix here. Um, fundamentally, you have to get a representative group of people to answer your questions. And we need to be clever about how we do that. And we need to make sure that we are not overly relying on any single poll, knowing how much um, margin of error there is around the responses that we get.
1: Because you guys, I mean, the way where we're it intersects, I think, from mm-hmm. what I can tell, is you guys are saying to the campaigns, we've done some predictions here, and you're better spending some time messaging Peter because he's more likely to vote or give you money or both than the people at the bottom of this list. Sure. So you're making some of those judgments yourself. I assume that gets you into the polling world.
0: Yeah. I mean, also, all the data that we are collecting is mm-hmm. used for those polls. Right. And so we necessarily kind of get entangled in it a little bit. But we build predictive models for each person. And some of those models are based on prior history. So for example, your likelihood to turn out to vote is based on your record of turning out to vote. That's We don't need to call you to ask you that. We can look at the public records. But your likelihood to support Democrats, um, that's something that we might use prior responses to polls for people like you to inform. Um, And that is the type of thing that we do rely on. Or, you know, to get a little bit more specific, you know, right now, obviously, um, abortion rights are going to be a critical part of the midterm races. We have a model that we provide that predicts the likelihood that someone supports legal abortion. That is something that we're also going to have to call and ask people for a response about. This is the measurability problem of politics and why, again, I think it's a little bit more fascinating than some tech problems um, because you can't know what's inside someone's head. And we really have to be extremely clever and careful about how we build those predictive models to make sure that we are giving people accurate information that they can Act on as they're doing their messaging strategies.
1: One of the biggest stories in media, and it's semi under the radar, less so now as the earnings numbers are coming out, or the number of tech companies, tech platforms that are saying our ad business has really been shaken Mm -hmm. up by Mm -hmm. Apple Mm -hmm. specifically, and the way Apple has made it more difficult to track. Does that affect what you guys do, or is that really a whole different ecosystem?
0: Um, It affects us on the voter contact front that I'm talking about a little less. It, It. Certainly affects the donation side of the political advertising business, um, which, again, is is less my my area. Um, I think that, again, because we already have such measurability problems, we are already living in a land where we're having to to be pretty creative. Um, so less on us. What I will say is very much an area that we are focused on is regulation and changes around both email and texting and. Um, to voters, which which are areas that are also kind of actively evolving, and kind of how political organizations can use those mechanisms to reach voters or to reach donors. Are those
1: rules getting more or less restrictive?
0: On both sides, it's kind of an evolving, um, an evolving territory. I think we are focused as Democrats is to make sure we're using any of the mechanisms in a way that is fair and not abusive. But I think uh, we do see Republicans, specifically around email trying to counter spam rules um, and kind of get through a lot of very abusive email marketing practices specifically. But that's a pretty hot area of um, kind of evolving patterns, and I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how it unfolds in
1: the next year or two. We'll be right back with Nell Thomas, but first, a word from a sponsor.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.
1: I know it's not your area exactly, but you also know the platform well. <laughs> yep. You worked at Facebook. I'm just curious about how you think about which platforms are good for campaigns to do different kinds of stuff for messaging, which platforms are better if you want to raise money versus convince someone to get out to vote. How do you think about, I mean, I don't want to go through each platform, but sort of what strikes you about, you know, Facebook's good for this, TikTok is better for that, Twitter is good for this.
0: So in terms of fundraising, I think there we see the feedback loops that we often want to see um, where you can target someone, see if they click, they join the email list, they later donate. You can can calculate a customer lifetime value. understand ROI very directly. So I would say the traditional channels you would use, that a marketer would use, I think work well for that, including Facebook.
1: And that feedback loop that seems like it's now disrupted because of Apple, does that make it more difficult? It's
0: a little little bit more difficult. I don't Mm -hmm. don't think it's impossible. You can still do it. You can still do it. It's just, again, harder the the same way that many companies are doing with it being a little harder. It's harder
1: for someone to sell you those new pants on Instagram, and it's harder for you to extract money, but you can still do it.
0: Yeah. I think for the voter side of of trying to persuade someone to support your candidate or to turn out to vote, by and far the most effective means of communication is in-person, face-to-face. And that is really the gold standard. Um, Decades now of uh, randomized control trials have proven out that that is the most effective way of getting a person to change their mind. We're trying to see more and more of that being replicated online. And you, there's kind of the buzzword right now, relational organizing. Relational organizing is actually a very old um, way of doing business and politics, which just means that you talk to your friends and family. You talk to your network about what you care about and why you care about it and why they should support your candidates. More and more, we're seeing political campaigns trying to use, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, as a place for individuals to share their own values, their own causes, and kind of be those influencers within their network and touch other people. Some platforms are better or worse at kind of giving campaigns insight into whether or not that's working. And I think that that's where how much a campaign cares about measurability also impacts maybe how much they might invest in different channels. So if a campaign really wants to track everything in detail, they're not going to be as incentivized to use something like Twitter, where you get very little feedback of whether or not someone tweeting a lot is actually influencing people's opinions?
1: Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> which, which no one yeah, on Twitter realizes.
0: Yeah. I do think it's worth, I, I think it's worth talking about TikTok quickly because I, I think it's a really interesting case. Which
1: uh, you guys were not using it a couple we were, of years ago. We
0: were not using it a couple of years ago. For,
1: for political, for, for so, international so, geopolitical reasons?
0: For cybersecurity reasons. Yeah. You know, I think we are, Constantly doing risk benefit analyses of any tool we're using to understand what is the security risk, what is the potential benefit, um, and that's something that we you know consistently reevaluate. We have a fantastic chief security officer who runs runs those analyses, and we have recently decided that the benefit of being on TikTok, given the breadth of um, reach. Is worth.
1: It's freaking huge. It's huge. People we want to I mean, reach it's, are there. It's bigger than
0: Google, right? I mean, it's and there are tons of eyeballs. There's tons and tons of young people, which are obviously an audience that we, as Democrats, need to be speaking mm-hmm. to. Um, and so there, there's huge benefit there as and, well. And so
1: just to talk about the the cost benefit, right, there was initially a concern, People, some people still have it, that because this is a Chinese-based company, it's so it's effectively working in concert with mm-hmm. the Chinese government, whether they mm-hmm. say it or not, yep. that there was a concern that they had access to data that they could misuse. There's a second concern that says, well, maybe that's not the big problem. The problem is... They could censor or promote messages they like or don't like. And then there's just an overall do we want to be working with a Chinese owned platform, especially if we're running campaigns that might be complaining about that? But you guys have looked at all that and said, we're better off using it.
0: We've looked at all that and we put in place a number of precautions to make sure that we're using it in a way that is as secure as possible and as safe as possible. But we, at this point, don't feel like we can ignore the audience that is on TikTok. And we think it's really, really important for democratic. values and wins and you know successes to be told um on all where people are You know in 20 years ago 30 years ago so that was all broadcast tv yep. you know now we need to be um in the places that people are consuming content. Um, so we, we actually have we have a crazy talented group of um, digital you know young digital strategists who are doing work specifically on that format to really make sure that we've hired people who just built content for TikTok at this point.
1: Do you have a sense of whether they're doing obviously they're, they're paying for for reach but do you have a sense of whether they're sort of running traditional ads or they're working with influencers and having them do the do the promotion?
0: Yeah so we have our own channel um, where we're kind of producing content from us. And then there's also a a pretty great influencer strategy that is not specific to TikTok, also Instagram, also Facebook, also Twitter. We use a a tool called Greenfly. It's a commercial, um, not a political organization that allows um, us to distribute content specifically to influencers who can then reshare it to their networks. Um, And we've seen a huge success with that. So, you know, we're trying to make sure that we are giving um, people who care about what's upcoming information, content, tools, so they can themselves speak authentically about what's happening.
1: You also spend a bunch of time talking about disinformation and how fighting that is part of your job. And I think people are confused either. They've either intentionally been confused or they're just naturally confused about what disinformation is at this point. Um, And I think there's a key distinction between political messaging that you don't agree with, Maybe it's even wrong versus disinformation, which is an attempt to really try to confuse you and maybe not even get you to vote or something like that. Do you do you see that distinction, or is it all sort of a continuum for you?
0: I mean, I think a continuum is a good way to describe it. Um, I think that we see whether it's disinformation or misinformation uh, as a threat. You know, I mean, we want people to have accurate um, and. Correct information about what's happening in the world and about how to vote. And I think that we see both foreign and domestic actors trying to undermine that information, whether that's giving people misleading information about. Voting rights, or whether that's about the facts of what Democrats have done, and so all of that falls under the umbrella of things that we need to be actively thoughtful about and countering.
1: So there was a lot of what should the platform should be doing, and 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 what what are they doing enough? Are they taking it seriously? And their messaging would change back and forth, and there continues to be a discussion about whether there uh, there should be legal, um, whether there should be laws about this stuff or some sort of government oversight. What can the DNC do?
0: Yeah. So we try to be, again, very, very intentional about how we're weighing into these debates. Um, I think that we have seen Republicans really lobby the platforms, um, uh, specifically Facebook and YouTube, and really have an active voice in trying to shape their policies. So we absolutely are putting out information on a consistent basis. about
1: The Democrats who complain about big tech usually aren't it's a different complaint than the it's conservatives, right? Yeah. Conservatives are, we are being censored. We're being shadow banned. My message about this horrible uh, thing I want to do is not getting out to the people I want. That was my editorializing, not yours. <laughs> um, the Democrats generally are saying it's too big. Yeah. It's a different complaint. But the DNC, you, you, you I, mean, I assume you have a different, a different line.
0: We believe that the policies are not strict enough mm-hmm. is what I would say. And one of the things that we've done is we put out a scorecard mm-hmm. that we've updated a few times where we compare very objectively – Um, the platforms and their policies against disinformation and misinformation you know a good example is like will a platform release hacked materials right that's a really hot topic and what you can see when you look at that scorecard is that there is no consistency there it's really a wild west of what platforms are and are not enforcing And, and also
1: how we feel about it changes over time right and you everyone's always fighting the last war and the tech companies are you know catching up either because they want to catch up or they want the issue to go away. And and there's lots of folks now who say they they overreached when it came to the Hunter Biden laptop story where Twitter for X yep. number of time made it impossible to get access to a New York Post story. And right. probably that was a bad idea. Yep. So I'm just thinking, so so are you wading into this and saying, hey, hey Twitter, shut down access to that New York Post story? Are, are you working on that level or are you... Mostly doing policy and scorecards and nudging.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we try to we try to kind of work across all these areas, right? So we kind of have a four pronged approach. We're monitoring first and foremost, like what what disinformation is actually out there. Like that is one of the ways I think actually we were very blind in 2016 was that we were not just even aware of the extent of disinformation and misinformation that was out there. So first is monitoring, you know, and making sure we can be on top. But the second is making sure we know how we want to respond to this information that's out there. And, and sometimes no response is actually the best because we don't want to amplify mm-hmm. what is disinformation. The third thing we're really thinking about is policy work. So how are we actually trying to move platforms in the right direction? And then fourth is education, right? Because we're only one organization. And- I, one of the things I'll say is that because of the partisan nature of lot of this, sometimes we're not even the best organization. You know, I actually am really excited to see the emergence of some nonpartisan institutes that are now really focused on helping platforms think through and understand the integrity issues that are um, inherent in them.
1: Do you think this is solvable? It seems in some ways this is almost like talking about weather at this point. It's you know and and you, you got to live with it and there's going to be some of it and these these giant platforms of course they're going to be abused by people for different reasons and it's fine to to be vigilant but there's a limited amount you're going to get done.
0: I don't know. Sometimes I, I like to compare where we are in time to, like, if you look at the you know early 1900s and you look at what driving a car was like and you didn't have speed limits, you didn't have seatbelts, you didn't have sidewalks, you, you know, all these sort of things. And, and you see how much auto safety has improved in 50 years and how much that came from a combination of consumer pressure, government regulation, uh, self-imposed industry. Um,
1: Tech. Got better. Tech
0: got better. It was a confluence of factors that put pressure to improve standards. I think you're going to see something similar with the internet um, broadly. And I think that we will be in a better place in the future. And I think it'll come from consumer pressure and industry self-regulation and government regulation. I think that in the meantime, you know, like today, tomorrow, the best thing that Democrats can do is put out accurate information. And so one of the things that we're most focused on is not necessarily like whack a moling every single little bad story though you know though we try it's also we put out a website one of the things my team builds iwillvote.com it's a website where voters can get easy to use super simple website but actionable information about where when and how to vote and that's meant to be like can we cut through the bad information out there and give people something they can trust
1: so you're doing data for the clinton campaign in 2016 that ends and immediately is even before the election ends everyone's outraged at facebook and and blaming them for the election i think wrongly in many cases but so what is that decision like to go work for facebook directly from the clinton Into campaign the are, are they are they coming for you do they say we we want you here you have insight or we need you here because we're getting killed by by democrats so we need a democrat in here
0: i was approached but not because i was a democrat i think because i actually it was because i had been leading large analytics teams at Etsy um, and had a, a good track record from a tech industry perspective, I've made it a very intentional choice to go into the into Facebook. And I, I really did see it as a way to arm myself with more information about how this platform that worked. That
1: you thought you were going to go back into politics and you wanted to see up close and personal how this stuff worked?
0: Yeah. I mean, I... I see myself continuing to kind of weave back and forth between the tech industry and the political industry. There's many reasons I don't consider myself a, a full-time, long-time political operative. I, I do really love working in the tech industry. But um, I felt like Facebook, you know, especially in 2017 when I joined, was the place to be to understand how a company at this scale makes decisions. And I had the opportunity to work very closely on the ads business as well as have a lot of exposure to the Instagram's business. And it was a phenomenal experience. I learned a ton and I i am so glad I went there and did that work.
1: Where did you confirm, like, how much of it was, this is what I looked like from the outside and you know what, I was right, it does work this way versus I had no idea it worked this way.
0: I think I, you know, it's so, it's so there's so much to unpack with Facebook. I was most surprised by how decentralized decision-making is. And again, I was there for a couple of years at a specific point in time, so I, I certainly don't want to speak to the entire history 2017 of 2017 and 2019. Yep. I was surprised by how – I mean, and it, it makes sense when you think about it, but how much decision-making was – on the product level and the feature level was left to kind of the the folks right on the line. And I think that's why you see the Facebook – experience just from a user experience being very um, messy. But I think it's also why you see a lot of- Because there's a
1: bunch of different teams advocating for- Highly
0: decentralized, lots of local decision-making. At one point when you would go and sort of the- the Facebook app tab, you would see over like 35 different little features, right? Everything from like a weather app, mm-hmm. which was one of the most popular weather apps on the internet, to, you know, find my friends, you know, all these kind of very long tail specific features. Um, and I think that surprised me. I, I really thought there was more of a central vision than I saw. But at the same time, it's really a place where you, individual teams are allowed to pursue um, metrics and objectives and see what worked. But I think that same thing led to a lot of a lot of the integrity issues because there was no one centralized thinking about the ways that the app was being misused. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there were so many individuals at far-reaching parts of the organization making sometimes competing decisions about what happens, um, I think that's where you saw a lot of things fall through the cracks.
1: And I assume that's – I mean, I hope everyone processes what you're saying because I think a lot of times like Mark Zuckerberg did yeah. this because he wants – this thing to happen, right. or he's working with so and so, or he wants the money. Right. Obviously, he wants money. He's running a business, but I think a lot of times, like it's not that much ad money, et cetera. I mean, the idea that there's lots of people within Facebook all pulling different levers, it's yeah. not coherent.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there are areas where leadership and and Mark, I think, are heavily, heavily involved. And I think again, it's it's probably a little bimodal in that way too. Like there are some areas where it is really like Mark's decision or Mark's idea, but I think there's lots of places where I saw it be. Much less organized. And though. when you
1: go back to the DNC, you say, "Ah, I, I was there. Let me tell you how this is going to work." Or it's, is it? Do you think there's enough movement of that company that a lot of what you picked up on and maybe is less relevant now?
0: I think a lo- I think a lot moves, and I, I'm always hesitant to like be applying lessons from two years ago, especially when things move as fast as they do in this industry. I think I have an appreciation for how hard the job is at Facebook and how, I mean, I do think that there are some really well-meaning people inside that company. The number one problem in my mind is that you're fighting against the tide of the algorithmic bias that exists when you have an algorithm that serves content that's based on um,
1: the popularity engagement,
0: right? And you, you get divisive content. And it's very, very, very hard to correct for that bias in what is shown. And so... Until because they, you want people to stick around, yeah, and and you're showing people the content that gets clicks and yeah. likes and you know reshares, and that content is going to be problematic content in a lot of cases. And I think that story was known internally very clearly, and I think the failure to act on that is an issue. But I don't know how they're going to act on it when it's also serving their their needs <laughs> of revenue.
1: What is there's so many obvious differences between working for a Facebook or an Etsy and a political campaign. Is it smarter? Is it smarter for me to ask you what's similar about those about toggling back and forth?
0: I think what's similar is that you're dealing with really hard problems, and you are reliant on having a really good team that you work with. Um, and I think one of the differences is that um, working at Etsy or Facebook or an Instagram, those companies really understand the value of talent and investing in it. Um, And political organizations, even the DNC, which is a 100-year-old organization and is enduring, is so prone to the cyclical forces of election cycles. I
1: worked on this campaign. Now that job no longer exists. The campaign doesn't exist. I need to go work somewhere else. Now there's a new campaign. I'm going to go join that one.
0: Also, the fundraising. So the DNC is completely funded by fundraising. So my team's budget, like a $20 million a year budget, a 70-person team, that is completely funded by donors. And the donation cycle spikes and valleys, as you can imagine, with the Mm -hmm. election cycles. And that means that funding for the team is very easily accordioned as well, which means investing longitudinally is very, very difficult. And I think we've done amazing work to kind of counter that force. but it's again, there there's a very strong bias in that way that you know we have to work to make sure that we are putting in place like, Simple things like giving people career ladders, giving folks an opportunity to stay for more than you know nine months or eighteen months, and see their impact through. How to even just build like a tech culture that is resilient to that sort of disruption and discontinuity.
1: I remember in 2020 reading a lot and hearing anecdotally a lot about um, people who were working at Google's and Facebook's and who wanted to go basically volunteer. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're getting paid or not, but they viewed it as volunteer work going to work on campaigns. (laughs) Was that really happening? And do those folks cycle out? And do you think you'll get them back for future campaigns?
0: Yeah, there is. I mean, it's it's a blessing and a curse of a presidential year. You get a huge influx and interest. And that's both, you know, it's money, it's volunteers to make phone calls, and it's talent to come do work. Um, I do think one of the goals that I have is to make sure we're capturing all that interest and pulling it through to every single year, because we have important elections mm-hmm. happening every year. It's not just in presidential years. Uh, and so we need that talent, that time, that energy uh, very uh, as much in 2021 as we do in 2020. So we certainly see a lot of interest from folks from the tech industry. And I've been extremely lucky to work with such a talented group right now that I'm you know, continually honored to be leading. I'd love to see us continue to grow that footprint and raise the visibility of the work we're doing, and have more people come and lend their talents however they can every year, and not just when there's. a big But at the
1: same time, I mean, some folks are going to have day jobs and/or careers, yeah. and so and is, is, is there a way? We can't pay as much. So, right? right there's, and is there a way to sort of funnel? The, like we know we're only getting six months out of you. That's yeah, fine. Here's yeah. what we want you to do.
0: Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, I think folks who've ever run a volunteer organization also understand it can be challenging to direct folks in a way that is like impactful in a short-term period. And also from a security perspective, make sure we're properly vetting individuals and making sure that, you know, I everybody... haven't
1: asked you once about hacked emails.
0: <laughs> I'm impressed. So, you know, that's, that's always a consideration as well. I mean, obviously we want to take advantage of those folks, but we want to do, be in a way that's considerate and conscious of um, their time and the work that they can do and our security needs.
1: Now, Thomas, you came in all the way into Manhattan so we could <laughs> sit in an unair-conditioned recording studio on a very warm day. So, I want to give you the last word. Beyond get out and vote and and donate to the candidate of your choice, what message do you want to impart to our listeners?
0: Well, I would not sleep on the voting thing. I mean, midterm turnout is often and only in the 40%. Um, I think as we've seen, uh, turning up into special elections and primary elections this year is going to be incredibly impactful, and it'll be even more important in November. So voting is the number one thing I'd say. I mean, no matter what your party, the more Americans that are participating, the better it is for our democracy, full stop.
1: I agree. Vote, vote, vote. Yep. Nell Thomas from the DNC, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks again to Nell Thomas. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing this show. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing it to you for free. Remain $0 after all these years. Uh, and thanks to you guys for listening and writing. we have got a new episode of Recode Media coming to you next week. See you then.